Oh, volunteers, maybe maybe Scott and Neil there. We're uh, preaching through basic Christian beliefs, and uh, right now we're on the virgin birth of Christ. The virgin birth of Christ. Next week we'll be talking about the deity of Christ. Now, if you, have, if you have your other handouts that go through all the basic Christian beliefs, you'll see where we are right now. We already talked about uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is only one God, but this one God exists throughout all eternity as three co-equal and co-eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We talked about the doctrine of creation by God. Evolution is a false teaching. Uh, we talked about the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible, and we talked about salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And now we need to talk about the virgin birth of Christ. As soon as everybody has their handouts, we'll, we'll open with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just thank you, Lord for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We know that we live in a, a day and age where men no longer desire sound doctrine. We live in a day and age where men love to have their ears tickled with, with new teachings, regardless of whether these teachings are true or not. And so we live in a day and age where men are entertaining false doctrines and still calling themselves Christians. But Lord, we long to cling to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We long to refuse to compromise on the essential teachings of the gospel that you have given us. And so today as we study one of the most important doctrines of the church, the virgin birth of Christ, I pray that you would guide us into your truth so that we would know and understand your truth, but that we would also see that the truth that you give to us is a transforming truth which changes us from within and transforms our lives. Lord, I pray for each and every person that is here, not because they are called to be followers, not because they're just part of the congregation that makes up Trinity Bible Fellowship, but I pray for each and every person here today, Lord, because you've called each and every one of us to have a ministry from you. Throughout the week, maybe we don't know each other very well. Maybe we don't know where we're going from here, or how we spend our Monday to Saturday. But each one of us here, you've given us a mission, whether it's through music or through evangelism or, or through service or through teaching. Whatever it is, Lord, I just pray that you equip and you power each and every one of us to be all that you called us to be, recognizing that the, the church is not a one-man show but it is an army of warriors, spiritual warriors, called out to do your work and empowered by you so that they're able to do your work. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. The virgin birth of Christ. Let's open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. There is nowhere in the Bible where it states that if you deny the virgin birth of Christ, 
you cannot be saved. Nowhere does the Bible say that. There are passages that teach that if you deny the deity of Christ, you cannot be saved. Uh, John chapter 8, 23 and 24. There are passages that teach if you teach a different gospel other than salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, you cannot be saved. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Um, but this is one of those very important doctrines that nowhere does the Bible say that if you deny this doctrine, you're not a true believer. However, when we close up this study, I'm going to make a few points why it is very, very important. And usually those who deny this doctrine usually deny some other doctrine which inevitably uh, proves them to be unsaved. And so this is a very, very important doctrine not to be taken lightly. And usually those who reject this doctrine reject the true Christian faith uh, in an essential area on some other point. But first, let's take a look at the historical accounts in the Bible of the virgin birth of Christ. So I want to look at the account from Matthew and then a passage from Luke. But look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, so they hadn't had any sexual relations at all, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, a virgin which shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took her as his wife, and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So it's very clear. There's no way to say, well, oh, this is just uh, symbolic language or spiritual language or, or well, it's, you know, it's real vague. We don't know what's being said. No, it's real clear what's being said. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, when God became a man, he was born to a virgin. No if, what's, or what's about it. It's real, real clear in this passage. Um, no way to deny it at all. Look at the, uh, uh, by the way, what's going on there, in a Jewish wedding, there would be a, a, about one year of an engagement before you actually had any sexual relations and the marriage was consummated. At the same time, in order to break that engagement, it would take divorce. So there'd be a year of time where there would be no sexual relations whatsoever in, in the courtship. And so, although they were betrothed, she was still not officially married to Joseph, and she was with child. And so, Joseph wanted to, was thinking of putting her away, and God confirmed uh, to him the fact that the child was of the Holy Spirit. Now, now take a look at uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 34 and 35.
In the Gospel of Luke, unlike the Gospel of John or Mark, the virgin birth is recorded as history here as well. Now, in Mark or John, it's not denied. It's just not mentioned. But we're going to talk about a possible uh, indirect reference to the virgin birth in John's Gospel a little while from now. But take a look at Luke 1, verses 34 and 35. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. Mary said, You know, I'm a virgin. There's no way I can have a child. And God said, Look, I'm going to do a miraculous work within you, and you're going to give birth to a child who's going to be referred to as the Son of God. Obviously, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these are the very clear historical accounts of the virgin birth of Christ in the Bible. They are so clear that for any professing Christian to deny them, to deny the virgin birth, uh, usually they're going to have to deny that the Bible is God's Word, and they're going to have to say, well, maybe the Bible contains errors and that type of thing. And at that point, a person's faith is on such weak ground uh, that it is almost inevitable that they're going to begin to deny doctrines that would be essential to salvation, or at least that the Bible teaches very clearly are essential to salvation. Uh, now, a lot of liberal scholars, liberal scholars, by the way, I'm not talking about them being liberal politically, though they almost, almost always are, but I'm talking about being liberal theologically and being liberal biblically. What I mean by a liberal scholar is, basically, it's, I'm using it right now in reference to all those who believe that the, the Bible contains errors in it, who deny the essential teachings of the Christian faith. Basically, guys who make their living either studying from or preaching the Bible, even though they don't really believe it. Okay? Uh, liberal theologians have said, well, it's only mentioned twice, and Paul never mentioned it, so... He didn't believe it, and John never mentioned it, so he didn't believe it. Mark didn't mention it, so he didn't believe it. And this is an argument from silence, that because, because they didn't mention something that was in the other two Gospels, uh, therefore they didn't believe that it occurred. And that's obviously a very weak uh, argument. But what I want to do is point out two or three other indirect references to the virgin birth. They're not real clear... Uh, but it, the virgin birth might be alluded to in these passages. Look at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. The Apostle Paul is speaking, and in Galatians 4, 4, he says something very interesting about Christ. He says, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, Paul doesn't mention the virgin birth in any of his writings. At the same time, he just happened to refer to Jesus' birth, and he referred to it in such a, such a way that he admitted he had a, a biological mother, but he didn't mention at all a biological father. And so we could actually have our own little argument from silence. Yeah, maybe Paul never directly mentioned the virgin birth, but he also never 
never mentioned that uh, Jesus had a biological father. And so, uh, but here, the, the very least that we could say, Paul taught that Jesus was born of a woman, and he never mentioned him having a biological father. Now, I think that it's real clear that, you're, that uh, Paul believed in the virgin birth, and John believed in the virgin birth. Arguments from silence that the liberals use are, are not... Now, if Paul had taught Jesus was not born of a virgin, then you would have a contradiction. Then you would have a problem between Paul and Matthew. But if Matthew mentions one historical event, the virgin birth, and Paul doesn't, you don't have a contradiction. Paul just wasn't felt, didn't feel led to write on that. In fact, you know, one thing about Paul, Paul didn't even feel led to go places where the gospel had already been preached. Even if, if, you know, if God's doing some work through this missionary, that missionary, that's great. But I want to go where nobody's gone before and preach to it. So if you carry that over to Paul's writing style, Paul might have decided, hey, why should I write the same about the same exact things that John and, and uh, Mark and Matthew and, and Luke wrote about? Let me, let me write about things that they haven't talked about. And so he got more into the doctrines and the theological implications of the historical events. But that was Paul's style, uh, to boldly go where no man had gone before and to, to set out the uh, doctrine of the church rather than to repeat the history that was already given uh, in the Gospels. Uh, take a look at the Gospel of John. John doesn't clearly talk about... The virgin birth of Christ. Uh, basically, in Matthew and Luke, they both record Christ's birth. They start their uh, biographies of Christ with his birth, so they're going to talk about the fact that he was born of a virgin. Mark, on the other hand, picks it up much later in Jesus' life, so he just wasn't going to talk about the birth of Christ. So he, that he wouldn't mention the virgin birth. Uh, John, on the other hand, he talks about Christ's conception in the womb of Mary, but not as a his, not historically, but theologically. That's why he says, "In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God." And then he says, "The Word became flesh. God became a man." So John's intent was more theological than historical, uh, and be, because of that. Uh, he did not mention the virgin birth of Christ. However, there is a passage in John 8, verse 41. Jesus is debating the Pharisees, and they got into a real heated argument here. A big, big debate was going on. And in verse 41, Jesus said to the uh, Pharisees, he's basically saying, you guys are not true Jews, because true Jews would accept the Jewish Messiah. And so he's debating these guys, and then in verse 41, he says, You are doing the deeds of your father. Now, he identifies their father as Satan. They're following their father, Satan, rather than following Abraham, the father of the Jewish nation, who uh, uh, was trusting that someday God would bring the Jewish Messiah uh, from his family and uh, would redeem the nation of Israel. So Jesus says, You're doing the deeds of your father, Satan. And the Pharisees said to, said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Now, the, the late uh, 
uh, Professor Walter Martin commented on that, that it doesn't look like a lot's being said right there until you look into the Jewish Talmud. Now, the Jewish Talmud was the written record of the oral traditions of the rabbis during the time of Christ. Now, the rabbis were passing things down through oral tradition. They weren't writing it down. They were just... They would say things, and people would quote the sayings of the rabbis, the Jewish Bible teachers. And uh, about 150 to 200 years after Christ, they started writing down the oral teachings that were passed on through word of mouth. Well, in the Jewish Talmud, it tries to explain away the virgin birth of Christ by claiming that Christ was illegitimate. Okay? The Jewish Talmud, which was written by the arch enemies of Christ, they knew that there was rumors going around that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so the way that they responded to it was they started a rumor that, hey, since everybody agrees that Mary is the biological mother of Jesus, but Joseph isn't really his biological father, they decided to start a rumor that Jesus was illegitimate and that some other guy had relations with Mary, which obviously wasn't true, but that was the rumor uh, that they started. Now, Walter Martin, knowing that, knowing that background, that that vicious rumor, that vicious lie was being perpetrated by the uh, and being proclaimed uh, by the Jewish rabbis during the time of Christ... He saw in verse 41 kind of a veiled slam on Christ. Kind of, they're getting in this heated argument and Jesus is accusing them of being illegitimate sons of Abraham. Not true children of Abraham because they're rejecting the Jewish Messiah. Jesus decide, and so the Pharisees decide, okay, you want to you play dirty? You want to shoot dirty pool? Well, then take this. We weren't born of fornication. We're not illegitimate. And it's kind of implied, we're not illegitimate like you are. And then if you read anything from then on, Jesus really takes them to task. At that, the, whole, the whole argument ends up with these guys picking up stones to try to stone him. And he, he uh, hit himself and went out, out of the temple. But there is possibly here the virgin birth being alluded to by the Pharisees trying to come up with an alternative theory in an attempt to explain away the virgin birth. And so that's a possible indirect reference. Another one is in Genesis 3.15. This is a prediction of uh, the coming Messiah. The first prediction in the Bible, first prediction in the Bible about the Messiah Adam and Eve had just fallen in the garden. God had created them perfect, put them in the paradise of the garden. They fell into sin. And now God's going to cast them out of the garden. But before He cast them out of the garden, He gives them a promise that someday they would be, uh, salvation would be provided for mankind. Now, Satan had spoke through the serpent to lead them astray. Then in Genesis 3.15, God says this, I will put enmity... I will put hatred between you. He's talking to the serpent, who actually Satan was speaking through. I will put hatred between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. By the way, there's a lot being said here. It's very symbolic. Now, 
I mean, you could just take it as the, the hatred between woman and snakes. Now, I'm a man and I don't like snakes, but mo most women really do not like snakes. But there's more that's being said than just that because Satan, Revelation 12.9 tells us, or it's either 12.9 or verse 12.12, 12, 12, chapter 12, verse 12 of uh, Revelation, that the serpent was the uh, Lucifer himself who spoke through the serpent. But God would put hatred between, the, between Satan and the woman and between your seed, your offspring, and her offspring. And then he says, God says, He, the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise Him on the heel. Now, many scholars recognize this to be a prophecy of the Messiah, that from the seed of the woman eventually would come one who would crush the head of the serpent and defeat Satan while Satan bruised his heel. And, of course, the crucifixion of Christ is when, when Satan thought he beat Christ, but he was only bruising his heel. But Christ just lifted up his foot, and through his resurrection from the dead... He crushed the head of Lucifer and defeated Satan uh, in our behalf. But the key here is if you do a word study on the word seed, it means more than just offspring. I know the NIV likes to translate it offspring, and it often does mean that offspring. But basically the word seed literally means seed. Many passages, the word seed can be translated sperm. That's what it's talking about, the seed of the man. This is the only passage that I know of in the entire Bible where the seed of, of a woman is mentioned. Every other thing, it's the seed of Abraham, or the seed of some other man, or the seed of some other guy. And so it's almost implied in this passage, and we might be taking it a little bit too far, but there are some scholars who see an indirect reference to the virgin birth of Christ, just in the phrase itself, the seed of the woman, seems to imply that from the woman will come one man who will be born without the agency of another man. And so some would hold to that. Whatever the case, we do have in Matthew 1 and in Luke 1 direct historical accounts of the virgin birth of Christ. And for anyone to reject the clear historical teaching of the Scriptures is to place themselves in uh, spiritual jeopardy. Now, the question comes up, if Jesus rose from the dead, what were the reasons? Why did... I mean, if, if Jesus was born of a virgin, excuse me, if Jesus was born of a virgin, why? What possible reasons for the virgin birth would God have? Now, first, it's a real obvious one. It's not a primary reason, not the primary reason. But in Isaiah 7:14, 7, 700 years before Christ was born, it was predicted that God's Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7:14, Matthew quoted it. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel by the way means God with us. God is going to become a man and the sign given to us will be that the virgin will bear a son. Uh, so number one, a possible reason for the virgin birth to fulfill prophecy. Uh, but the fact that God predicted it 
He's just telling us what he's going to do. It's not the primary reason for the virgin birth. Now, B, in your notes, you might want to put a star by point B uh, under, uh, under uh, number three. This I would see as the primary reason for the virgin birth. And that is, if Jesus had two human parents, he would merely be a human. He could not claim to be God. I mean, Phil Fernandez had two human parents. I have two human parents. Joseph Fernandez and Angelina Minichino. Uh, for me to claim to be anything more than just a man would be a bogus claim. If Jesus had two biological parents, all he could claim to be is merely a human. But for God to become a man, yes, Jesus had to be fully human. He had to inherit a human nature from his mother. At the same time, uh, he had to be able to claim a divine nature and claim that God the Father was his own father. And so I see that as the primary reason. Now, there is a possible third reason, and I do hold to this view in point C. It is not popular in the church. Uh, I don't think it's heretical. I haven't heard anybody claim it to be heretical. There are some uh, Orthodox scholars that hold to it, but I see this just jumping out of the certain passages of Scripture that in order for Jesus not to inherit a sin nature, he had to have been born of a virgin. Now, Miller J. Erickson, uh, Henry M. Morris, uh, most Christian scholars would disagree with me on this point, but I think their alternative view is even weaker, uh, much weaker, and uh, therefore I would hold to this one. But let's take a look at a couple verses. And, and by the way, if you disagree, after the sermon's over, if you disagree with me on this particular point, no problem. I, it's, it's not an essential of the faith, obviously. And, uh, but I, I want you to hear me out so you do know what my view is on this particular passage. Psalm 51.5, King David is speaking. And he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, he's not saying that his mother who was having relations with his father. Uh, he's not saying that, that sexual relations within the context of marriage is sin. That's not what he's saying. In fact, I like the uh, NIV translation of this ver ver verse. It basically says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and uh, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. That's the idea. That David, from the moment of conception, when life first starts, when the sperm of the man unites with the egg of the woman, you have a new genetic code, you have a new human being, and David says, at that very point, at the moment my life first started, nine months before I was born, at that moment my life first started, I already had a sin nature. And so it's real clear that David is saying that he inherited his sin nature from the generation before him. Now, I want us to look at Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Keep that in mind. We receive our sin nature at the moment we're conceived. I want us to look at Romans 5, but I'm assuming that we all have at least a basic knowledge of the fall of mankind. 
If you remember what happened with the fall of mankind, um, Satan tempted Eve, the woman, and she sinned first. There's no doubt about it. She sinned first. Then she turned with the forbidden fruit and gave it to her husband, and then he sinned. So he was the second one to sin. So out of the human race, who sinned first, the man or the woman? It was the woman who sinned first. That's why Romans 5 is an interesting passage. Romans 5, start at verse 12, and then we'll take it down a little bit. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that was through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. Adam is the one man they were talking about. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? The key there is in verse 12, it talks about through one man sin entered into the world, through a man. It identifies him as Adam. And then in verse 15, it says, For by the transgression of the one, the many died. You see, the Bible doesn't teach that you're born holy or conceived holy and then you become rotten. The Bible teaches from the moment you're conceived in the womb of your mother, you already have inherited a sin nature. You are sinful by nature, and then when you reach the age where you know right from wrong, you just naturally do uh, what comes natural to you, and it's called sin. Okay? Now, Jesus Christ is the only way that that vicious cycle can be broken. By surrendering and saying, I can't save myself, I'm a sinner, it's natural for me to sin, I need to turn it over to the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in Him to give me victory over sin. But the fact is, you know, it, it almost makes you think, well, Paul, don't you know that sin did not enter the human race through one man? Sin entered the human race through one woman. Eve sinned. She sinned first. Then Adam. So sin was passed on through the human race from the woman. The woman sinned first. But that's not what he says. Paul says it was Adam. In other words, if I'm reading the implications, if I'm reading Paul right and drawing the, the proper implications from what he's saying, if Eve had sinned, but if Adam did not sin... As far as the theology of Paul goes, and my understanding of it, then mankind would still not have yet fallen. Okay, now again, most theologians disagree with me on this point. But what I'm getting at is, the fall of mankind did not occur till Adam fell. Now, that creates a problem, because what happens when Adam and Eve have relations and then have children? If Adam hadn't yet fallen, what would then occur? It's my understanding 
that if Adam did not sin and he had relations with Eve who had sinned, the child, the children that would come from that relationship would not inherit a sin nature because it's my understanding from putting these passages together that the sin nature is somehow passed on through the man. In other words, when a little girl is conceived in the womb of her mother, she has a sin nature, but she inherited it from her father. And when a little boy is conceived in the womb of his mother, uh, he has a sin nature, but he inherited from his father. So all have a sin nature, uh, but we inherit it from the father. Now that's, you know, I could be wrong on that, but if that is true, if that particular doctrine is true, and I think that the implications of what Paul says in Romans 5 demand it, if that is true, what would happen if you ever had a man who was born of a woman but had no earthly biological father? He would be born without a sin nature. Now, let me talk about some of the alternative views to this. The Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic scholars scratched their heads and said, Now, wait a minute. If Jesus was born without a sin nature, and he inherited his human nature from his mother, then his mother, Mary, must have been born without a sin nature. And so you have the Catholic doctrine, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, um, and the Immaculate Conception of Mary teaches that Mary was conceived without a sin nature. There's a big problem with that view. Number one, it contradicts the Scriptures, which says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all except for Jesus have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, therefore they need to turn to Christ. There's only two classifications of humans, the sinners and the Savior. There's no in-between, Okay. Mary even referred to, I believe it's in Luke's Gospel, one of her prayers, she even referred to God as her Savior. Only sinners need, need a Savior. So Mary was not conceived without sin. But just suppose that those other passages weren't in the Bible. Just suppose that she was conceived without sin. Well, where, where did she get her human nature from? Her parents. And so the same logic would then force us to say that her parents were conceived without a sin nature, and then their parents, and then their parents, and then their parents, and then you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, and guess what? Adam and Eve don't have a sin nature. And what did you do? You just destroyed the doctrine of the fall. So I don't think the Roman Catholic uh, view is correct. But I'm, I'm starting to hear a Protestant view. It's not real common, uh, but there are some... I, I wrote down a common Protestant view, but it's really not that common... But at least there are some Protestants trying to answer this question, but I think they're missing the boat. Miller J. Erickson mentions it in his work on the uh, doctrine of Christ, the Word became flesh. Henry Morris mentions it in some of his works. And basically what they figure is, hey, if Jesus got his humanity from Mary, since Mary is a sinner, then that would make Jesus have a sin nature. And obviously Jesus didn't have a sin nature, and so what these guys are trying to say is that the uh, egg of Mary was not even used. That God miraculously created a fertilized egg and then just put it in the womb of Mary. But think about what's being said there. What does that turn Mary into? It turns Mary into the surrogate mother of an alien. Because Jesus is not really... It, 
If Jesus did not really get his humanity from another human who was descended from Adam, then Jesus really wasn't descended from Adam. God forbid, and they'll probably do this someday, but God forbid they took the fertilized egg of an ape and put it into the, the womb of a human, human woman. Um, that would not make that fertilized egg of an ape a human. It would still be an ape. And so if you take a fertilized egg that is not uh, in the line of Adam... You do not have a human being. You just, you have an alien. And so for Jesus to truly, when, when Jesus said he was the son of David, you know what he meant? He meant he really was the son of David. He was the descendant of David. When he could trace his line all the way back to Abraham, he meant he really was one of us. Jesus is really human because he got his humanity from a real human. And her name is Mary. But somehow, some way, even though he inherited his humanity from Mary, he did not inherit a sin nature. And I think that those passages seem to strongly imply that the sin nature is passed on through the man. Now, supposing you're, you're scratching your head and you say, I totally disagree with you. Fine. Miller J. Erickson is a, a godly Christian man. I met the guy too. Dynamite guy. Loves the Lord. He disagrees with me. Henry Morris loves the Lord. Uh, he disagrees with me. That's fine. This is not essential. But what is essential? What we cannot compromise on are doctrines like the virgin birth. Now, liberal theologians who reject the virgin birth, let me say this about them. Usually, because it's so clear in Matthew 1 and Luke 1, when they deny, reject the virgin birth and say that no intelligent man in the 20th century could believe that that uh, a man could be born of a virgin. That's, that's ludicrous. Everybody knows it takes a man and a woman to make uh, a, another human being. But when the liberal theologians reject it because it's so clearly taught, they're denying inerrancy. They're basically saying, well, the Bible made a mistake in those passages. And by denying inerrancy, if the Bible makes mistakes, then it seems that they would be denying inspiration. The fact that God inspired or guided human authors to record His Word without error. And so basically what I'm saying is, if a person denies the virgin birth, expect to see them throw the Bible out the window with it. Secondly, it usually leads to a denial of Christ's deity. Once you say that Jesus had to have a human father, well, if He's got a human father and a human mother, what does that make Jesus? Merely a human, period. Whereas the teaching that the church has passed on down to us from correct the correct interpretation of the Scriptures, Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is not merely a man. He always existed as, uh, fully as God, and then at a point in time, uh, He took on a human nature and became man as well. Uh, I want to close with a... Just to show you one of the major problems, you know, do I fully understand the virgin birth? No, I don't. I don't. I don't fully understand. I don't. I don't understand how God could take an old man Abraham, and an old his old wife Sarah, and raise up a mighty nation from them. I don't understand that. I don't understand how God could love me so much, even though I'm a sinner, that He sent His Son to die on a cross. I said, there's lots of things I don't understand about God. 
Isaiah 55, 8, 9. said, God's ways and His thoughts are as far above ours as the heavens are above the earth. So, you know, I don't fully understand the virgin birth. But one thing I do know, there is more than ample evidence that the Bible is God's Word. A tremendous... I think it takes blind faith to say that this book that I'm holding in my hands right now is not the Word of God. And you've got a bunch of evolutionists who think we came from soup, who think we evolved from uh, monkeys. But the Bible says in Romans 1, professing to be wise, they became fools. I don't understand everything in this book, but I know that whatever the Bible clearly teaches... I better accept because God has spoken. If God has spoken, the issue is settled. Now, if you do want to pick and choose from the Bible what you want to believe, like the liberal theologians, let me just show you how ludicrous typical liberal speculation can be. The late Dr. Walter Martin was debating a liberal theologian, and... Walter Martin was talking about how God parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites so they passed over on dry land. And this liberal scholar talked about all this recent theological work that had been done to show that in all likelihood it probably wasn't the Red Sea, but it was probably, which is, a, you know, it's very deep, the Red Sea, but it was probably the Reed Sea, same basic part of the world, and the Reed Sea, in some areas, it, it dries up during the year. Some areas, it's not common to only be only two inches high in one area. And so what this liberal scholar said is, uh, with all my human wisdom and my ability to speculate, uh, I figured out that there was a strong wind on the Reed Sea, and probably in an area where it was a, only a foot high or less, a strong wind came and, and brushed right through it and pushed the water to the side so the Israelites went through on dry land. And the late Dr. Walter Martin, who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and believes the Bible is God's Word, he simply turned to the guy he was debating and then asked him, he said, well then, that sounds very, uh, very uh, ingenious to come up with such a theory, but explain to me how the Egyptians drowned in one foot of water. How the Egyptian army drowned the one foot oar. This is not a smorgasbord here. This is not, you don't pick and choose what you want. Say, I like John 3.16, but I don't like Ephesians 5.18. If this is the Word of God, and I believe the evidence points to it as the Word of God, then God has spoken. And if God has spoken, then the issue has been settled. And if God said that 2,000 years ago, there was a little baby who was born to a virgin. If God said it, I believe it. And if God said that that little baby born to the virgin was the almighty God himself become a man, if God said it, I believe it. And if God said that salvation comes in no one else but through that little baby, who would someday grow up to be a strong Jewish man and who would someday be crucified and suffer for six horrible hours on the cross, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, to die for the world, the world that was living in rebellion against him. If God said it, 
I believe it. I worship Jesus Christ as my God and my Savior, and if He could create the entire universe, and if He could save a wretch like me, then He would have no problem being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. God has spoken, brothers and sisters, and when God speaks, everybody listens. When God has spoken, the issue is settled. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, in Jesus' precious name, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, before we were saved, we would just go around basing our lives on the, the faulty, erroneous opinions of man. But now we have found the refuge. Now we have found the stronghold, something to cling to in our time of need. We have found infallible guidance in your book, the Holy Scriptures. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever go back to where we came from. That we would ever, ever even be tempted to sit in judgment on your word. But that instead, we would judge our own ideas and our own actions by your infallible word. That we would recognize that your word is, is the ultimate authority in our lives because you have spoken and you have spoken without error. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us, though we may not fully be able to understand how your Son could become a man by being born of a virgin, I pray that we would see that you have clearly stated that that was the case, that it did occur, and therefore we are to uphold it as truth and recognize that 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was conceived of a virgin and born of a virgin. And I pray, Lord, that not only would we hold, uphold the historical teachings of the Word, uh, but any, any science that the Bible teaches, we would uphold that as well. But especially, Lord, those teachings that you've given us in your Word about salvation and how we should live the godly life. And so, Lord, I pray that each and every person here, before they leave this building today, would recognize that the Bible says that we're all sinners, we cannot save ourselves, and that salvation comes only through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we should trust in Him alone for salvation, for He died on the cross for our sins, took our punishment for us, and then conquered death for us by rising from the dead. And so I pray, Lord, that each and every person in this room would trust in your Son, Jesus, alone for salvation and would ask Him for forgiveness, and would ask Him to guide them throughout their lives. And so, Lord, we thank You for the virgin birth of Jesus Christ.